This, this, this is a Tape Deck Podcast. Hey everybody, it's H, and welcome to the latest installment of Escape Patch, your portal into cinematic pocket universes. This week, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Jason. I was like, this is some sexy stuff. Like, this looks really fun. Like, heroin looks great. And we're finally reunited with the host of the Recode Media Podcast, Peter Kafka. Or maybe we're the wrong three guys to be opining about what young people consume these days. We tackle one of the greatest films of all time, Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. If you're enjoying the show, we need your help. Take a minute to leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast, or just tell your friends about us because it really does help new listeners find the show. We also have a Discord server where you can hang out with us online whenever you want, and a Patreon where you can support us and unlock exclusive perks. Links are in the show notes. And now, without further ado, Pulp Fiction. Peter Kafka, we could Woo! not finish the summer without your return. I'm back. Where I'm are back. you right now? I'm uh, from an undisclosed location in the Jewish Jersey Shore. Oh. Which is Margate, New Jersey. Oh. Margate, okay. I didn't realize any part of the Jersey Shore wasn't, like, at least in some way coded Jewish. This is very Jewish. <laughs> okay, I see, I see. This is Extra? like there's no boardwalk Jewish because we don't <laughs> want people who might hang out at a boardwalk. Right, 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 right. Jewish. I gotcha. So Proto was just raving in another Discord about Cape May, New Jersey. Is that it saying is like incredible? That is south. That's the very bottom of New Jersey, and it's a okay. chill beach hang. All right, very good. I have no context for New Jersey. I mean, Jason, you went to school there, right? So you have yeah, you have Central Jersey. Yeah, I love Jersey. Jersey's beautiful. Mm. Mm. Big well, Jersey th- defender. <laughs> well, this has been a hell of a ride. You know, we've been working to get you, Peter, back on for months. Jason was sick. Uh, there was mm-hmm. travel or something was going on. I was Jason, worried I'd been kicked out. We were very what hot and yeah. heavy oh. for a while, and then there was a, a very long pause, and I thought maybe it was something I said. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, no, it was definitely something not said. We were ready for for you uh, to get in here. But so, Jason, you are back. How's everything going? I see, I see the Paul statue over your shoulder. Yeah, I guess in the good news column, I've got a two foot statue of Paul Atreides uh, uh-huh. over my shoulder uh, that I love like a third child. Uh, uh-huh. I'm grateful to have it. Uh, in the bad news category. Um, my <laughs> wife, my wife had COVID, uh, which wasn't like a super chill beginning uh-huh. of the summer, uh, end of the summer. Hey, gold toes, oh, woes. Hey. Yes. Thank oh. you. Thank Extended. You. Uh, my car got stolen and now our kids have lice. So it's really, it's really been great. It's been a good start to the year, uh, of the school year. Um, and so, yeah, as we record this podcast, my wife is uh, delousing our children. Mm. Um, I am Defcon not a- one. Yeah, I am not attending the delousing because, as a bald gentleman, I am immune. Um, <laughs> which is pretty wild. That like, uh, you know, I I've somehow made it to forty six years of life, and this is the first time I've actually have to dealt with I've dealt with lice at all up close and personal. Um, the nice and thing is, get you it. get to deal with it for like another. 10 years. Yeah, exactly. I think right. lice have become more 
like serious since I, we were kids. I think the mm. lights have evolved to like be more serious. Or kids um, are just hanging out much more intense. Just rubbing their together, hair. Rubbing their skulls together. <laughs> yeah. But the de-lousing like visit was like once a year for a full decade uh, for us. And we're now, yeah. I hope, finally clear. We didn't have like kind of like de-lousing treatments. It was just like you look like you were from the right stuff. Like your head was immediately shaved and that was it. Like I see. Deal with well, it. Well, I'm not above that. So I like <laughs> it we'll could happen. See. I'm gonna shave some kids. I was up in Orcas, Jason, up yes. in the San Juan Islands. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, basically just chilling in the forest and hanging out and then spent some time in Seattle. And it was just nice to have a little bit of time, you know, through the end of the summer. And then today was Sam's orientation and tomorrow is his first day of school. How do you feel about that? I'm pretty stoked, man. It's kindergarten, it's kindergarten is, right? It's like it's legit school. It's no longer like just messing around school. But we showed up at the orientation and his two eighth grade buddies, each kindergartner has two eighth grade buddies, and they immediately oh, came up to him and they just disappeared and we didn't see Sam for like an hour. And oh, he they did took not him to, to go like do drugs. <laughs> like drink. <laughs> this is a vape. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh my God. Oh, man. You need to yeah. rob your old man for Roblox money. That's smart. Yeah. That's, that's smart. How about you, Peter? The kids back at school? Uh, no, no. We don't go back till after Labor Day. Wow. So they're wow. still running amok here on the beach, and uh, one of them has discovered girls. Oh, Whoa. big development. Yeah. Yeah. That girls in real life, girls. So, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, that's he great. He, well, yeah. I mean, I, I've, this is a thing I had not considered. He told me that he had made out with a girl and wanted wow. to high five him. Okay. And I, I would not <laughs> high five him. And I had to explain why. Like from the Jersey Shore, he met this girl? Like just out in the. Yeah. Out the yeah. Wow. This yeah. is like a. That real, is great. This is like a, a real movie situation. This is what he's wanted for a long time. It's like, I want to ride bikes around all day and make out with girls at night in the park. And wow. And he's doing it. Yeah. He'll never hear this, so I can talk about it freely. That's great. <laughs> and he didn't even have to go to Christian camp in order to do that. Like, that's pretty impressive. No, yeah. it's, it's yeah, I'll, I'll keep my mouth shut. But yeah, uh, it's it's happening. Awesome. Very good. Well, that is quite, that is quite amazing. It is great to, you know, have had this nice summer. Um, and we are now, it's back to business. Jason is, is returned and um, Escape Hatch is back. Escape Hatch and is back. And we... We are finally ready to tackle Jason season seven, the big ones, part two. Is there a bigger movie than this movie we're covering today? Probably not for our demographic. I mean, like for like, you know, the this podcast demographic, this is kind of the godfather. Mm. <laughs> Will you start it over and talk through the whole movie? Yeah. Uh, we are tackling the biggest of the big, Quentin Tarantino's Apotheosis, 1994's Pulp. Fiction. A, a big movie. A big movie. Mm. A movie that means mm. a lot to a lot of people, especially dudes. We're, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially dudes. So we're going to get into that in just a few moments. First of all, next week, Jason, the return of the king. Yeah. Jeremiah Gordon is back. Yeah. And he is bringing with him. I just, I, I pinged him. I went without you. I didn't even let you know I was doing this. I just pinged him and I'm like, dude, we need to do our first Denzel, you mm-hmm. pick whatever you want to do and we'll do it. And he thought about it long and hard. And we are doing next week, Spike Lee's Denzel joint, 
Inside Man. This one I haven't seen, I think. What? This is gonna Me be my neither. First view. Oh, yeah, my first you lucky one. guys. Yeah, I'm yeah. excited. So lucky. This. I'm it's excited like a about top this. three Spike movie. Yeah. And I'm tons excited. of people in this movie, too. There's a lot of yeah. good players in this. Yeah. Yeah. Clive, <laughs> Jody, Jody Foster, kind of prime Jody Foster. It's really good. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Chuetel. Uh mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so that is very exciting. Cannot wait to get Jeremiah back on the mic um, and for us to be able to get into that. So stay tuned next stay week. Tuned. By the way, Inside Man is streaming for free on USA and Stars. Oh, interesting. Peter, how's USA doing? That's uh, what is that? That's part of the Paramount Network. USA Where is that? Is, or is it Universal? Yeah, it's part of, it's part of the Comcast family of failing right. or declining <laughs> yeah. linear TV networks. I did not know that it had had its own streaming joint, though. I might mm. you might want to check your source. Apparently, that's what right. Letterboxd. That's what Letterboxd said. Let me just ask you really quick, just while you mention that, is is Apple going to buy Disney? Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm coming to me for all Disney uh, <laughs> yeah. questions. <laughs> um, loyal listeners remember that the last time we talked about this, you guys asked me about the, the Disney CEO and I said, he's fine. He's, he's Bob <laughs> at the time. Yeah. And I think like within half an hour of you guys posting the pod, that was no longer true. Right. Um, right. To, in my defense, an actual person who works at Disney pretty high up, I'd asked that person a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. So uh-huh. they were, they were a couple of weeks prior. So they were pretty confident. Uh, I don't think Apple's going to buy Disney, but uh, all bets are off because why not? You can buy anything you want these days. There's you can no buy anything you want. There's, Lena Khan has failed. Uh, all, all bets are off. Buy whatever company you'd like. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I'm waiting to say I would love for some of my subscriptions to bundle up and you know to not have to continue paying but, but for No. It. Why, but, though? You, why? So you, can, so you can get a bunch of channels you don't want? You don't want? Well, I already, you can't turn them off? I already have this. Comcast. I have Comcast done this for that. Before. I'm already covered on that. I, I have Comcast and I have the other streaming This services. fantasy that people, oh, it'd be great if we just went back to Kate. Like, I understand why the cable guys would like that, but they can't unwind the past. And we don't want that past. It sucked. It I just sucked. discovered the other day when something, uh, it's Paw Patrol streams on Paramount. Yes, and of I did not. I did not know that my kids are not deep in the Paw Patrol universe, but we're dipping their toes in those waters. And uh, I was like, "Oh, I got to see what it's on." I was like, "Oh, it's on Paramount." Like, we don't have that. And I like loaded it you up. Don't? It turns out, it turns out, I do. <laughs> I did. I was unaware. <laughs> I was unaware. I don't know Surprise. how long I've been paying for it. Uh, but yeah, no, my kids have been less into that. Into that, the ones that they for some reason have really liked the French animated children's uh, shows, including. PJ Masks. Are you familiar with the yeah. PJ Masks? Yeah, yeah. PJ Masks. That's French. Yeah, it's originally French. Uh, I had no idea. Yeah. And uh, it is uh, the other one they like is The Miraculous, which is uh, the ladybug uh, cat noir love story where like they get turned into su- like teenagers get turned into superheroes. That's a big hit right now. We're watching a lot of Miraculous. So please, please send me a link. I would love to. See yeah, what, yeah, it's on. See that one's that's... on Netflix. Okay, very good. Well, I yeah. I did have a note to mention to you um, because of your Star Trek love. I have been watching every morning while I do my 25 minutes of physical therapy for my ankle um, that I'm trying to rehab. I watch an episode of Lower Decks, which mm. is the animated Star Trek show, right. which everyone raved about it forever as the best yeah. new Star Trek show. And I put yeah. it off and put it off for three years and I finally watch it. And it's like, it's the best. Okay. It's better than it's better than any of them. Um, That's great. And it's absolutely phenomenal from the very first episode. So wait, wait what's the Bravo reality show about people who work on yachts? What's oh, that Under Decks. Below Decks. Below Decks. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. 
I hear that's good too. I <laughs> I am I am behind on everything with all of the various illnesses, and I'm including Baldur's Gate three as one of the illnesses. I haven't even started Ahsoka. Uh, <laughs> like I don't know anything. I haven't I'm oh. seen nothing. So okay. I don't know. I hear there's television. I'm sure I'll get to it at some point. This is the Check summer of movies. You guys both did Barbenheimer, right? Yes. Of course. I, although so I just saw it. Barbie last week. I just finally oh, really? saw Barbie. Yeah, I finally saw Barbie last week and I liked the men jokes the best. I like yes. the I like the we start over and talk through it all this stuff, you know, and the the Stephen Malkmus joke was like exquisite. Like exquisite. It was a laugh out loud in the theater yeah. solo because no one else yeah. on it or cared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really funny. Thing. Yeah, it was really funny. I think the movie I laughed the most at this summer was uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yes, though. very good. Um, it really, very, soundtrack. very funny. Killer mm. soundtrack. Soundtrack was insane. Like it's perfectly geared towards Gen X parents, obviously. So it's yeah. it, you know if, if we didn't like it, it was a problem. But I loved it. Like I and we saw it with Griffin, and it was just a delight. So I I, I loved seeing that. That's so killer. So killer. Yeah, definitely check that movie out if you've not seen it. It is mm -hmm. wonderful. Hooray for soundtracks that appeal to Gen X dads. Yeah, exactly. Just put well, some Tribe yeah. Called Quest in and we'll be good. But, but I am struggling because I go to put it on and it is not say like Paramount has an official playlist and it starts out with that M uh, MOB track and it is very non-safe for children. Uh, yeah, so for sure. <laughs> Got to work it out. You gotta you gotta you gotta grapple with that sooner than later. So yeah, yeah, yeah. we were Fair listening enough. to we were listening to a, I was picked up my kids from school today and I had a pod on. It was actually uh, the big picture with Sean Fennessy and sure. he dropped an f bomb uh, like in the, like within seconds of my kids getting in the car and my and my son goes, Dada, we need to turn off this podcast. I was like, okay. And I was like, I was like, why? He's like, because he said the F word and we don't say that word. I was like, you're right. We don't, we'll listen to the miraculous soundtrack instead. He's like, what would mama think if she found out about this? And I was like, well, she's not gonna, she's not gonna find out. So we're, we're gonna be, we're gonna be fine. So thanks, Sean Fennessy. Lying to your mom. Uh, it's going better for you than it is for me. So Sam went to a variety of outdoor summer camps where he basically played in the forest uh, and was playing army games every single week and he was always second in command or third in command but they had a secret cannon that they were firing and it had a code word that they would say every time they fired it and sam let us know that the code word was fuck yeah. <laughs> so, so it's it's going great bob <sighs> all right jason how about some hatch news would you like to know more Hatch news, sad, <laughs> sad hatch news. I forgot sad about this segment. News. All right, oh, it happened. Man. We kind of were debating. We were trying to figure it out. But in the end, Peter, the strike is ongoing. The strikes, yeah. plural, um, and particularly the SAG-AFTRA, which would prevent any of the stars of Dune from performing, um, is dragging out. And so the film has been pushed to the Ides of March, an auspicious yeah. date. An auspicious date. What could happen? Any betrayals? Any further betrayals? It's kind of amazing. These movies were supposed to come out in 2020 and 2022. And now we are a full two years behind um, mm. because of pandemics and strikes. Um, pretty wild. Mm. Peter, I know you had a great pod early on. Uh, your guest was saying he thought it was going to be September by the time we got there. Like, yeah. what's your what's your gut feeling right now? I don't have any gut feelings. I mean, the, all the smart people who are telling me mid-September are now saying, oh, end of the year or into early next year. But yeah. no one's wow. got any vision into this. I don't, I still don't understand the studio perspective. Like, 
they will have real pain if they don't have movies <laughs> right. to show next right. spring. And they're going to hit in September, October. They need to be back at work finishing next spring and summer's movies. And, and that's really costly. And even though these are big mega corporations, they actually need the money. Like Warner Brothers Discovery needs to make money because they've got tens and tens of billions of dollars in debt. They're a ZERP company and they have this huge right. debt yeah. to deal with. So they they do have a point in which they have to make concessions and, you know, I tend to discount almost all strike coverage, not just this strike coverage, but all strike coverage, because it's almost always informed by the strikers and everything's life and death. And this is existential. And in the end, there's right. a compromise. Uh-huh. Um, and that's just what I assume they'll do here. There'll be a number between zero and 5% and they'll end at two and a half and they kind of move on. So again, like the Disney CEO issue, maybe I'm totally misinformed and totally wrong, but I assume they'll come to some kind of agreement this fall and everyone comes to their senses because they all want to be in the business of making yeah. stuff. Yeah, I think if it, I think if it wasn't so like entwined with this moment of what are movies anymore and like how does this actually work as a cultural institution, it would be easier to solve. But I think it's just like there's divergent and unsettled notions of what the future of like entertainment looks like and folks just don't even know what to maximize for at this point. Yeah. But it's still a yeah. pile of money that someone's that yeah. they're going to make that they should divvy up. And like some of it, like, yeah, we don't longer have residuals. Right. So let's figure out a new system. That yeah. Makes sense with some, tr- like it's not, it shouldn't be. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the stuff, like I think the AI stuff is mostly yeah. bullshit. Yeah. I think. If I was a studio head, I would let the yeah. writers and actors get totally uh, whipped yeah, yeah. up about this stuff. Oh, yeah, AI is yeah, coming yeah, for yeah. your job. And in the end, right, go, you're right. right. We're not going to have AI actors and AI <laughs> scripts because we no. never wanted that. Right, right. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> well, we're, we're waiting. Uh, we're waiting to see. And Jason, we're all set. All of our deposits are okay. The party's rescheduled. Yeah, we'll be rescheduled until next year. So a couple of folks had started to ping me about what's going on with this party. And we had, tip- we had purposely not sent out invites yet because we were holding to see what happened with the strike and luckily we did and now the party will be in march so stay hopefully. tuned hopefully, hopefully. Yeah. i think it'll i think feel good about march all right i am or my biggest concern is that now it means that like i had been very i'd been very optimistic about the sequencing for stuff like wonka was coming out after dune and i think oh, Wonka's gonna right. fucking suck and right. like, I, and I just don't need the shine to come off of my various Timothy? stars. Yeah. And so I'm worried about what these weirdos are going to get into um, <laughs> until March of next year. Maybe Wonka will push. But you've seen the, you is, isn't it from the, the Paddington guy? Yeah, it is from the Paddington guy. It should be good. I don't know. So I don't know. I don't I just know why saw we're upset, the, I just saw the, the trailer. trailer and it didn't like, it didn't sell. I, the trailer, the, it might, there might be a fun movie in there. It didn't sell Chalamet to me in the trailer. It was my concern. All right. Um, I was very concerned okay. watching that yeah. trailer. Like that, yeah. it, it seemed like I don't know something was happening. That was that awesome. Very- Butler's going to be involved in some racially tinged incident, and like Zendaya is <laughs> going to break up with Tom Holland. It's just going to be a, a summer of disaster. Florence Pugh, who knows? Yeah, they just I mean, we're dealing with some live wires. A little just while keep longer. it keep it together, please, for us. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, on another piece of news, and Jason, I'm very interested in your take on this, Denis. Uh, in this article uh, that came out this week, I think it was Empire, might have been the other one, but um, Denis cloud talking Messiah, um, saying that there were oh, words yes. on paper, and yes. that, you know he would he would love to do that. Like that's just yeah, 
he's not actually going to do Messiah, right? Like he's going to go do Rendezvous well, with Rama. And, he and- said he was interested in Messiah. I mean, like he has, I mean, this isn't the first time he's talked about it as a potential trilogy, right? So it's not, yeah. inc- it's not, it's not inconsistent. It's consistent with what he said before. Um, and he, 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 and, and further to that, he like kind of poo pooed the idea of going beyond um, yes. Messiah. Like he's like, you know, after that, the the works get esoteric, which I think isn't really fair <laughs> to children, but definitely is fair to God Emperor and everything that comes after. Um, oh, yeah. But I, I mean, we would love to see him. We'd love to see it as a trilogy, obviously. Um, 2026. Here we come. Yeah. Dune Party so- Part Three. <laughs> <laughs> the big, big ones. I assume there'll be some other disaster that happens that pushes that to like 2028 or something. But yeah. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. Stay tuned for more updates on that. Let's just welcome very quickly some new Discord members. We had Luke, Janapoleon P, Frozen Hours 529, Yo Ev, and Shippy. Welcome. welcome. Good mm. times. And then Bryce is back as a patron. I oh, thought he that's already great. was, but he's either back or still back or, or whatever. He's toying so, with us. He likes to like subscribe and unsubscribe <laughs> just to like <laughs> make Bryce. us feel something. <laughs> Let's feel alive. All right. Are you guys ready to do this? Yes. yes. Here we go. Pulp Fiction is the interconnectedness of our lives in a world equally governed by fate and the actions we choose. Vincent Vega and Jules Winfield are trusted enforcers working in the employ of the vengeful criminal boss, Marcellus Wallace. Typically dispatched to express Marcellus's displeasure with extreme prejudice, Vincent, recently returned to Los Angeles from Amsterdam, struggles when assigned the duty of entertaining the boss's wife, the beautiful and seductive Mia Wallace, with near deadly consequences. Things go downhill from there when he's tasked with tracking down a misplaced mysterious briefcase and capturing a past-his-prime boxer who risks everything for the one thing that matters the most to him. Our players will face a cast of characters including wannabe gangsters, drug dealers, psychotic rednecks, and a ruthlessly efficient troubleshooter, and will face degradation and elimination as their futures unfold. But they may just have an opportunity to experience grace, be redeemed, and become far more than merely the protagonists in the lurid pages of a cheap pulp fiction. Mmm. Wow. It's amazing to hear the movie synopsized. Like that. It makes it really sound like the whole thing. You don't ever think about the plot of No. It's hard. Yeah. It's. <laughs> Well, but it's not like Memento where like you need to yeah, unwind yeah, yeah. it to make sense of it. It no, doesn't matter sure. at all. For sure. Um, all right. Well, so let's just start. Peter, like you you had laid claim to Pulp Fiction, I don't know, like a year and a half ago. Like you had said that was- that I was thought that maybe you guys were trying to get me off that corner that you guys like had written <laughs> lined up or didn't want to tell me and that's why you weren't doing it. But yeah, no, this is this is the ultimate Gen X dad movie. This was- Yes. Um, I, I'd seen Reservoir Dogs in theaters- Mm. randomly basically blew my mind and then that was a classic like no one saw the movie theaters and then it went on vcr because pre-dvd and over the next two or three years just built up this you know everyone was blown away by it so when pulp fiction came out in 1994 me and my cohort were treating this like a taylor swift concert like we were lined up at 10 o'clock p.m for that screening we burst through the stanchions we were so excited for this thing Hell and yeah. it blew our minds and it was it felt like it was the first 
movie that was made for our generation by someone either in Mm -hmm. our generation or close to it. And you couldn't precisely explain why it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a, oh, we're a bunch of 20 somethings in Seattle. It was, it just got the vibe right. right. It got the incipient nostalgia that we were all doing. It got the, the culture mashup. Um, In a lot of ways, I think this is a movie that's kind of like, augurs the internet, right? Like taking mm-hmm. a bunch of different stuff and shoving it together. And sometimes it makes sense and sometimes it doesn't, but it's always entertaining or at least that hmm. version of the internet. And it's responsible for so much other cultural stuff. A lot of it's great. A lot of it's not great. You know, a million bad Tarantino ripoffs. Um, I still think it's the best Tarantino movie. I can go on and on. We'll do it for an hour and a half. But uh, yeah, yeah, this and I hadn't seen it in forever. Uh, yeah. I, I wow. It for this. And in my mind, this was always the tightest and most sort of controlled and least indulgent, least self-indulgent Tarantino. Yes. And I think that's all still true, but I, I forgot, man. It is a talky movie. Yes. A doy, but like that's Quentin Tarantino. But I forgot that, you know, it's not just set piece after set piece. It's mostly just talking. Um, right, right. Which, of course, it is. But I had forgotten how talky it was. And I think that speaks well to like how, what a rocket ride it felt like the first couple times. For sure. It's, yeah. It's stuck in my head. Yeah. Amazing. Jason, how about you? Yeah, I, th- I think Peter really teased it up well. I remember going to see this movie opening weekend. I hadn't seen Reservoir Dogs and like wasn't really tracking Quentin Tarantino. But a friend of mine was uh, who, like I mentioned before, Matt on this podcast, um, who was like, you know, sort of the reason why I was into like New Order and like was the reason I was into like Theater of the Absurd. He was like, oh, no, like this is like the hot sucker guy. Uh, maybe, but like, it was like, yeah, this is going to be like a big, this is going to be a big movie. Like, you know, everyone's going to want to see this. Everyone's gonna be talking about this. We should go see this movie. And I saw it and like, I, it was one of those things where I I think Peter really captures it well, where it's like the first time in a theater, I'm like, oh, this is something that like is for an adult sensibility that is that, but like, I am now the adult, like I am now the target demo for this, but not as a child. Um, and it it felt like, it felt like I was like on the cusp of like understanding something in a new, like seeing a bigger world. Cause I was like, kind of, again, like kind of the perfect age was 18, like when this movie came out and, uh, yeah, it was like, it it really sort of, I, it was like, I think it is for me. I, I said this at the top, like, our, our generation's godfather where you're just like, oh, like movies are different now. Like they mean something else. Like the the way in which we appreciate them is different. Like who they're for is different. Like it's like how they're made. Everything about it is different than it was um, before this movie came out. And that's what it felt like. Hmm. Hmm. So I moved to California in 92. I was 21, just about to turn 22. And I worked, my first job was at Citizens for a Better Environment, which was basically going door to door, knocking uh, at dinnertime, asking people for, you know, 20 to $100. And I had a quota of 120 to, to meet every night. Um, and then you'd get drunk and then you'd wake up the next morning and go do, go do it again, basically. And one of the my coworkers was this guy named Ben Schwartz, who not the improv Sonic the Hedgehog guy, but another guy named Ben Schwartz, um, who was friends with Roger Avery. And so I, as I remember it, he told me about Reservoir Dogs, which I had not seen in theaters. And so I obsessively uh, was into that. 
and then you know was really fired up when it was time for Pulp Fiction. I saw it in Berkeley. I still remember coming out of the theater and just being like, everything's changed now. Um, it's a whole new world. And I didn't know you could do this kind of thing in a film, like just the techniques mm -hmm. and some of it, which was obviously homaging, right? I was a big fan of Goodfellas um, uh, and Scorsese stuff, but like to see that taken in another different direction with, uh, you know, a more modern sensibility um, or a younger sensibility was just, uh, that was kind of stunning for me. So very powerful. Let's do some quick behind the scenes. So Roger Avery and Quentin, um, their inspiration was the three-part horror anthology film Black Sabbath uh, from 1963 by Italian filmmaker Mario Bava. Um, if you haven't seen that film, you can always check out Bat and Spider did an incredible episode on Black Sabbath, so you should check that out. Um, but essentially, there was three um, short stories in that film, and so they had the idea of let's make three short stories and we'll turn that into uh, into a film. And ultimately, QT's section got blown out and became Reservoir Dogs. Um, and then they came back together to continue developing the stories. And ultimately, they teamed up with Lawrence Bender um, and went to Jersey Pictures, which is Danny DeVito's production company. So they took it to uh, TriStar. Uh, the executive there described it after developing it and seeing the full script said, the worst thing ever written. It makes no sense. Someone's dead and then they're alive. It's too long, violent, and unfilmable. <laughs> Seems good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's fair. Uh, it's fair. But it was picked up by Miramax um, after they're purchased by Disney and was their first fully financed film. Um, and part of how they did it was they paid all the actors the same weekly rate. It makes sense. That's a good way of doing it. We're gonna pay. We're gonna pay you nothing. That's how we're gonna finance this film. <laughs> Very Weinsteiny. Yeah. 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 And we'll get into him in just a second. But um, per Travolta, Quentin was obsessed with Pauline Kael, and this has been uh, you know espoused upon. But her favorite actor from the '70s was Travolta, and so Quentin wanted him from from Dust Till Dawn because Michael Madsen was supposed to play Vic Vega in right. Pulp Fiction, and um, instead he ended up putting Travolta in there. Daniel Day-Lewis also wanted the role, apparently, and, and a lot of people um, in, in Hollywood at that time were trying to do it. Um, but very, uh, you know, kind of most of it kind of written, purpose-built. Jules was written for Samuel. No. Well, that's oh, the, the Peter he told, shaking his head. Uh, Quentin told that story on, on one of the Ringer podcasts about how he's trying to get Lawrence Fishburne initially. Uh, oh, Interesting. Yeah, and he, there's a his version of the story is that Lawrence Fishburne's management turned it down because of uh, he wasn't going to get paid enough, or he wasn't going to be the star. He needed to be the star. Lawrence Fishburne has now said the story is actually he turned it down because he didn't like the way it glorified heroin or something. Huh. But yeah, wow. It's, it's very interesting to imagine Lawrence Fishburne in that role. Yeah, it would have sure. been a lot. It would have been a, a different a different tempo. Uh, the movie does kind of glamorize heroin. I I I, I do think <laughs> that's very a very pro good, drug. I was like I was like oh like heroin. You don't really see a lot of like like amazingly cool depictions of opioids nowadays. It's that's out right. Of fashion. Well, if you've seen Killing Zoe, um, that is Roger Avery's other uh, film that he directed, which is a heist film in Paris, uh, where in the midst of the heist, you have the classic line, "And now we do heroin." So. Yeah. I think he was into it, uh, is right. my guess. I mean, it seems great. It's seems a movie fun. that's very conversant with drug culture, I'll say that. Yes. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Felt very, felt very, um, very realistic in that way. 
Um, so the thing that this film is known for more than anything else is the groundbreaking narrative structure. Typically, it's thought of as having seven different segments. Um, if chronologically, they'd be 4A, 2, 6, 1, 7, 3, 4B, and 5. Um, it's been described as a circular narrative, um, and other films have attempted this in the past, but this was kind of like the boldest uh, version of doing it. Um, what's your kind of take on on the narrative structure and, and, and the importance there? Uh, well, like I said earlier, I think in the end, it's it's not important at all. Like, it's a novelty that's fun, and I think that's not the film's major contribution. The film's major contribution is these meta characters who are infusing pop culture into their conversation, typically while they're they're killing someone, but you know, lots of that. It's the it's the idea of a movie about movies and movie about pop culture and movie about Hollywood and the idea that you can you can splice together extreme violence and comedy together at the same time, which isn't new, but he really pushed that forward. And I think that's much more I mean, in the end, right? This the briefcase is a MacGuffin doesn't fucking matter. Um, and when I, I keep having to remember that, that the last scene of the movie in the diner is not the last scene in the narrative and who cares? It's fine. Right. Right. Yeah. I think it's, I think the, I think it is just meant to be like a treat for movie likers. You know, it's just like, Oh, like here's something else you can, here's something else you can pay attention to is like, I'm going to tell you the story in this weird way. Um, if you want to like sort of stretch your brain, but yeah, I think, I think you're right in that it's, it's sort of, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't super it doesn't super matter. It's interesting the degree to which this movie has essentially very little thematic like level at all. Like, I mean, like, there, mm. like, there, like there is like you can come up with some stuff, but like it really is about like form. It is about it is about like sort of the um like the the way in which the dialogue plays with violence and like the 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 what it's saying about like what a movie can be i i remember talking to a friend's dad at a dinner and he was very or probably my age now probably very it was very earnestly he's like i liked it but what was it about right and we all scratched our heads like, right it's about nothing right it's right fun it's yeah not, which is a which is also very gen x yeah yeah, mm. yeah. I was so so I and I think that's to me the biggest thing. I I was I took so few notes when I watched this movie again and I hadn't seen it in a long time. Um because I felt like I knew every scene of this movie even though I hadn't seen it in a long time and Completely. like the narrative structure was not like you know hard like surprising to me at this point like I've, I you know I bought and read the screenplay. That was probably the first screenplay I ever bought for a movie. I think what was surprising to me was like how little the movie was about. Like I really like I don't know what I thought the movie was about like when I was 18, but revisiting it 30 years later, like I was just like, oh, like it's really just about listening to this dialogue and this violence like inter interjected uh, together. And like the idea that you can make a pulpy movie in a high art kind of way. Um, that's what the movie's about. And like the idea of it being sort of, it's not like it, cause there's parts of the movie that seem Lynchian almost in terms of like, you could really kind of watch this movie. Like, yeah, you can watch this movie next to like Mulholland drive as like a, Oh, like there's a Los Angeles and then there's a hidden Los Angeles where everything is really fucked up. And like people are getting tortured and there's all kinds of weird mystical shit happening um, below the surface. And even some of the way the interiors look are very lynching and it's the same diner, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. There's a lot of it that, the, it's, there's a lot of it that looks very similar. But Lynch is like, Lynch is like shooting for something about like what that world is meant to be and what it's saying about like, you know, sort of the characters who inha inhabit it, uh, in inhabit it. But like the, I think 
I think like the the Tarantino really is like it's just like you're you're gonna have to vibe with the talkiness of this, um, and that either means something to you or you're gonna sit there at the end and be like, what the fuck was this actually about? Well, and I think I think part of it it was just it was just so fucking cool. Like yeah. that's that that is right. for me one one of the the major impacts, and part of that was the fact that there was no score uh, right. for this film, and yet it has. One of the most iconic, you know, where music plays such an important part, but it's all done by, uh, you know, this very eclectic uh, set of tracks. Yeah. Um, and so Estrella Trickno uh, describes how the combination of well-known and obscure recordings helped establish the film as self-consciously cool um, versus like Forrest Gump, which is basically all bangers all the way through like the classics of the 60s and nothing that people haven't heard. It's just all on the beaten track. Um, and there's something about this that, you know, is gritty and gross for some of the things and, you know, just very underbelly and then some of it just really fun. Um, and so that, that is a, a very, and that soundtrack that lived in everyone's yeah. dorm room or post college, yeah. the poster everyone had, and everyone had that CD. And if you went out to a bar, it was in the CD jukebox. And yeah. so even if you didn't see the movie for some weird reason or didn't love the movie, you got every bit of that soundtrack pushed into you. Yeah. yeah. I and like I think it's to to somewhat of the detriment um of the movie. I I think because like when it got came to the titles, I was like, oh shit, like this is this is like that song. Like I can't hear it. Um like I can't I can't hear this movie. I can't hear this without like sort of imagining this like happening. Hmm. So let's turn from the score uh just very quickly. So Tarantino convinced Avery to forfeit his uh, agreed on co-writing credit. Um, he accepted a story by credit and then that allowed them to have the line written and directed by Quentin Tarantino, which they thought would be better on screen and in advertising. Clever. Yeah. Good move. Jason- Doesn't, Quentin does not seem like a great hang. Yeah, <laughs> he seems no, like he'd be a not. lot of fun to spend part of an evening with. Yeah, and then there'd be a point when you go. Now I'm done with the Quentin right. Tarantino yeah. experience, and my imagination is that he does not let you leave. No, and he just I, keeps I, talking I, at you. I think he's very much like you know the character that he played with the top, you know, <laughs> with like the Top Gun read. Like that's just. Yes. I think that's just what it's like hanging out with Quentin Tarantino. Um, it's just very intense, and every interview I see with him is like super awkward and strange. Mm. Mm. And he has a podcast now. He and Avery are doing a podcast, which podcasts I have not. Podcasts were made for Quentin Tarantino. He did a, he yeah. did a, he did several episodes with the Ringer of their big picture podcast where he yeah. picked the movies he wanted to talk about, and that's uh-huh. worth. If you're if you're this far into this podcast, you might want to check that one out too. Mm. Mm. Check it out. All right. So budget eight point five million dollars worldwide. Two hundred and fourteen million dollars. It's a good. It's a good return. It's a good return. <laughs> It's quite good. And none of that paid to anyone who acted in the movie, I guess. Since they're all making scale. Competition that summer uh, came out in May. The Flintstones, The Crow, Four Weddings and a Funeral, Beverly Hills Cop 3. Yeah, it's interesting, like... Like the fact that the crow came out the same summer is like a good indication Mm. of where we were. Because the crow is like the most emo... That's the closest we've ever gotten to... Like you know, the, the closest we've ever gotten to this very pure strain of a very specific part of the Gen X cultural experience. Um, 
Yeah, thank God. Woo. But the big, the big, big movie that year was Forrest Gump. That's that's, that's who won the yeah. Academy right. Award. And to me, that's yeah. the big cleavage. Like, are you a Forrest yes. Gump person or are you a Pulp Fiction yes. person? Yes, that's just some boomer shit. <laughs> I mean, I like Forrest Gump for what it, for what it was doing, uh, but uh, and I I like Zemeckis. Uh, but uh, I yeah. I remember seeing I remember seeing Forrest Gump. That's that year as well, and I remember hating Forrest Gump. Mm. Um, and being so mad about it. And I think it's funny because I hadn't really put together that it was like the same time as Pulp Fiction. And it really was this like, oh, this is what movies could be versus like this fucking dreck of like celebrating like, you know, this like imbecile for doing for like wandering into stupid situations like fuck all of that um and all of the music that's in it and, and Vietnam. fake fake history yeah yeah yeah. yeah which is funny which is funny because like quentin ends up becoming like the fake history the fake history filmmaker yeah that's great <laughs> Uh, I just thought it was visually amazing. The, th- the things that they introduced in that Listen, film were, were quite. You can take that up on BoomerPod. We're not doing <laughs> that on Escape Hatch. All right, very good. Thank you, putting me in my place. All right, so opening with the Miramax logo. Um, so obviously <laughs> we made it to the logo. Huge, huge wince on this, uh, but I have to say, at this point and even just beyond, here's some Miramax films: Sex Lies and Videotape. My Left Foot, Reservoir Dogs, Strictly Ballroom, The Piano, Clerks, Heavenly Creatures, Train Spotting, Swingers, mm-hmm. The English Patient, Goodwill Hunting, Rounders, Shakespeare in Love, Princess Mononoke, and hundreds more. But like in terms of introducing or funding the biggest creators, whether you know Kevin Smith yeah. or Soderbergh, like yeah. these guys truly, some- truly terrible people can make incredible art is mm. a recurring theme <laughs> <laughs> on everything. Yeah. No yeah. matter where you are. Uh, so we go from there to, you know, obviously the iconic uh, Honey Bunny and Pumpkin. So what's your take on Amanda Plummer and uh, our man, Tim? I mean, look, like I've said before, how important um, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And that's a that's a Tim Roth banger for sure. Never seen it. Love, love Tim Roth. Um, think he's great. Uh, Amanda Plummer uh reads as insane which i think <laughs> as appropriate for this movie um they're just great like they're immediately interesting it's just such a great opening to a movie you're like what the hell's going on here and it's like it's it's perfect because it's like you know it's a it's a two people talking that breaks out in violence like that is the whole movie mm. garcon means boy yeah so the thing that struck me watching it this time it is very intense with these tracking shots and these push-in shots mm-hmm. while they are talking. Like it is not just sitting there. Like the first couple shots are very straightforward. And then they're like these intense like push-ins uh, yeah. on them. Um, and you could also hear Jules and Vince in the background. You can see, uh, you know, Vince, uh, Vincent walking out. Um, so it's really cool that, that part of the connected piece. But I also love this idea of seeing these street level criminals, which obviously we got in, uh, Reservoir Dogs as well. So, so what do you think about that? Just like that idea of our obsession with the idea of the street level criminals and, 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 you know, mobs and drugs and that, that kind of stuff. Do those films, did they appeal to you? Like, what was your take on those? Yeah, I mean, I mean, street level criminals that are incredibly verbose and say interesting things, even when they're insane, of course. (laughs) Um, and you can tell, especially in retrospect, that Quentin Tarantino is a big Elmore Leonard fan. Yeah. Classic Elmore Leonard. Like they're bad. They're not really the worst people. Right. But they're also not very smart. 
Um, but they could also definitely hurt themselves or someone else. Like that's the classic Elmore Leonard villain slash inept bumbling bad guys. And it's a good contrast too with like again this generation of like the Raging Bulls like uh, era of filmmaking, which like if you look compare this like I love this version of criminality compared to say Mean Streets, which like I recognize as like an important movie in the history of film, but like doesn't really do anything for me um, as a movie watcher. Um, and like, it is like a similar thing where it's like a bunch of like kind of inept, like sort of, you know, low level criminals, but I would much rather have train spotting. I would much rather have Pulp Fiction, like, you know, yes. sort of highly verbose, like, you know, high, like heightened dialogue, you know, intercut with, um, you know, like a very specific, soundtrack and a very specific cultural underpinning than like the verite style of of mean streets um and what that's saying about crime like that i think is another one of these just like generational differences i don't know what the equivalent is mm. i don't know what like the i don't know what the current generation has for for street level crime and like what that what that version is because even like even like euphoria i feel still is like very rooted in like the Pulp Fiction version of the Pulp Fiction train spotting version where it's like it's so highly punctuated by pop culture by by the soundtrack it's so highly it's so highly defined mm. by the way in which the characters find a way to express themselves verbally um, Kev says the Safties yeah maybe the Safties the Safties are doing Tarantino and Scorsese right so yeah good time yeah good time yeah I don't I don't know if it's been found yet I don't know if it maybe it's maybe it's moment is nigh um where it seems like we're a little overdue for it but like like or maybe something... we're the wrong three guys to be opining about what young people consume these days so yeah i'm just like i like like it, it just should have popped but something like yeah. we would know we would know if pulp fiction existed like for you know young millennials like you know slash old gen z um so i don't know we'll find out stay tuned They'll maybe it's Fortnite. <laughs> Uh, obviously, we have the infamous line, everybody be cool, this is rubbery. Everybody be cool, this is a rubbery. Any of you fucking pricks move, and I'll execute every motherfucking last one of you. And bam, credits, uh, and Dick Dale's Mr. Lube. I mean, it's just like, I remember like kind of rocking back in my seat yeah. in the theater and just yeah. being like, what is happening? Mm -hmm. um, and then the music, obviously, so intense and really great. Like as the credits are playing, the trumpet, like it was giving me um, Kill Bill vibes. I, I like the. I also like, thought of Gil Pill. Yeah, I, I really did have a hard time seeing this and not just being taken out by just how, like, iconic this credit sequence is. It's just like it's in a way that like almost something like, you know, like 2001 or whatever doesn't. Like I'm still mm -hmm. able to like sort of appreciate it as cinema. This to me is just like read as like. Oh, it's this it's this thing that has been spoofed so many times. And like, you know, and, and we get right into the Royale with cheese stuff. And like I was just thinking, about, you know, I was like, that was spoofed at I, you know, I think the Academy Awards that year and a, a thousand other places besides. And it's just it, it, the the sign and the signifier really got divorced on this one uh pretty quick. Mm. Mm. Uh it and also kind of like the, the pulling you in viscerally with the radio dial changing and kicking over to jungle boogie um, mm -hmm. i thought was really was was really fantastic for pulling you in 
I, I mean, God, I, I don't even know where to start. Like, uh, obviously, the quarter pounder with cheese. And you know what they call a, a quarter pounder with cheese uh, in Paris? They don't call it a quarter pounder with cheese? Oh, man, they got the metric system. They wouldn't know what the fuck a quarter pounder is. And what do they call it? They call it a Royale with cheese. Royale with cheese. That's right. What do they call a Big Mac? Big Mac's a Big Mac, but they call it Le Big Mac. Le Big Mac. <laughs> What they call a wobble. I don't know. I didn't go on a bird chicken. Instantly, everybody wanted to be this cool. Everybody wanted to be able to have this kind of conversation or, or to be smart about stuff. Or they were having some of those conversations too, right? And the cool, I mean, mm. I think especially when you watch it now, like John Travolta, first of all, it's, the accent's ridiculous. And, and I yes. don't think he's terribly good in this movie, frankly. It doesn't matter. Right. Um, but what he what they have done, I think intentionally, is captured that your friend who went to Europe or studied abroad mm -hmm. and has uh -huh. now come back and he's explaining <laughs> how the world works to you, which in the nineties like was so much more of a thing because you didn't because you couldn't call anyone out on their right. bullshit. There was right. right, there's all no bar argument ever got resolved. There's no internet, mm. there's no there's no iPhone. So you had to listen. I've definitely been that blowhard. You know, it turns out in Thailand, and then you just right. ramble on about this stupid bullshit. Um <laughs> and and that really I, I I got it a little bit then and now I really get it. Like, oh, yeah. he's, he's telling you about how great the drugs are in Europe. He's yeah. That guy. It's funny, too, like just how different like the drug, uh, the drug culture is um, from like, you know, like one one place to the next or whatever, you know, like 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 from one time to the next, because it seems like a totally different, um, a totally different time. Mm. Samuel L. Jackson, I had first seen in Do the Right Thing, um, and then Mo Better Blues, uh, which was another one that Jeremiah suggested we consider for for Denzel, um, which was one of my favorite movies in college. Um, and Jungle Fever is the one where he just blows up. Yeah, 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 big time. Um, and so it's just so great to see him here. And then I love how they're uh, you know setting up the story, right? Like going to it seemed like uh, like the platonic ideal of a of a Los Angeles apartment complex. Uh, and then kind of like walking through and describing, uh, you know, having this whole conversation about, about a foot massage. So that's the other, obviously main theme for, for Quentin's, you know, entire oeuvre. Jason, like, how did you take that here? Oh yeah. The feet that like sort of is awkward. Like, <laughs> like that, this is one of the things that has not aged well in the movie, like more notably Quentin's very strong interest in using the N word as much as possible, like from his own yeah. mouth, like, like, but like the feet thing, now that you know about him and Uma and the feet, you're kind of just like, oh, guy's kind of a creep. Like it's <laughs> he's just kind of a creepy weirdo. So I want to make a a, a case a here. Foot defense? A no, foot defense? No, the foot thing. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't judge. <laughs> well, I yeah. do judge, but uh, not for yeah. the sake of this podcast. What I was struck by at the time and had forgotten about, but that scene. And then later, the scene with Bruce Willis and his girlfriend, it was like, yeah. oh, it's these characters having like frank conversations about sex that yeah. seems appropriate that you haven't right. heard before. And right. I'm not going to, you know, nominate him for a Nobel or a Wokest Award or whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but like, you know, and obviously they're, they're two uh, hitmen about to assassinate these guys. Right. But like, you know, having a frank conversation about sex, like I really did appreciate it. I think that actually holds up really nicely. The mm. joke I loved in this scene still was the have you ever given a dude a would you ever give a dude yep, a foot yep. massage? I still thought that was funny. The like way I the way he laughs. 
<laughs> Don't be telling me about foot massages. I'm the foot fucking master. You giving a lot of them? Shit, yeah. Got my technique down and everything. I don't be tickling or nothing. The whole thing is good. And it does sort of anticipate like kind of, it is like basically Sorkin. It, this is a walk and talk uh, yes. with like heightened dialogue about like something that's about nothing, but like it it's so artfully done and the, and the, and the, the timing of, but it's without the, without the pretension of Sorkin. It's not pretending to be about like, you know, historic matters or like something that like really, you know, from characters who are geniuses or whatever. Right, it's just, right. it's from characters who are hitmen and like kind of not particularly good at it, like it turns out. But like, it's just, it comes, it comes across as just great. Like it, it really is fun. Well, yeah. And part. so I was stunned when I was, was rewatching this. Uh, so that is all one shot, right? Them from the time they get off the elevator and they walk that entire discussion, they get to the door and then they even walk down the hallway to finish the conversation yeah, yeah, and then yeah. they come back. All of that is one take. So this is DP Andrej Sekula who yeah. directed Reservoir Dogs, Hackers, yeah, American Psycho, and then that's basically it. Like Listen, nothing. Some people retire. Some people retire. That's I fine. Maybe he's tough. playing Baldur's Gate three right now. Mm, let's hope. But they they set up the Mia uh, storyline here, um, and this was an important part that QT was taking as his kind of whole kind of motivation for doing the film. He wanted to subvert classic tropes like quote mob guy has to take the the boss's lady. Part of the trick is to take these movie characters. Okay, these characters. And genre characters and genre situations and actually apply them to some of the real life rules and see how they unravel. Okay. I saw that mm. quote about the trope. What 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 other movies have that classic trope where the mob guys take out his the mobster's girlfriend? I don't know, some mob movies. I mean it probably stuff from the fifties and sixties that he watched fifty times on VHS or whatever at his Yeah, his. I bumped on that one. Mm-hmm. So yeah. now we have Brett and Marvin. We've got Frank Whaley and Phil Lamar, the voice of Samurai Jack, um, who I love forever. How did these bozos get the briefcase? Like what? Like what's the deal? It's a, I think it's like they they were involved in some drug deal. Like they were they were sort of like in you know they were involved in some transaction where it was supposed to be on behalf of Marcellus Wallace, but they like realized they ended up with more than. Um, they bargained for and so we're like all right what are we gonna do with it you know what are we gonna do with this yeah i think that's it that seems right i love the description of i don't know how things got so fucked up uh you know when yeah. you know you're deep in it um and everything about jewels yeah it, like it's, it's just it's the so menace good. that is dripping yeah. it's great. say what again describe what marcellus wallace looks like what? Say what again? Say what again? I dare you. I double dare you, motherfucker. Say what one more goddamn time. Say what again is still amazing. Say say what again is phenomenal. Like yeah. it, it, it's like that was one where like I obviously knew like that dialogue be, beat for beat, and it's still like completely sizzled for me. I was like, this is great. Like, like what what a, what a, what a mind wrote wrote this. Say what again? So half of the dialogue in this movie, like I've committed to memory, and I when I quote it, I know exactly. So check out the yeah. big brain on Brad. Mm-hmm. That yeah, one. There's other stuff that I've totally forgotten that I yeah. got from Pulp Fiction, but still use all the time as well. Huh. Uh, like later in the, when, when Travolta goes to buy his drugs, like that's a bold statement. Like I totally forgotten. That's when he's like comparing <laughs> his heroin yeah, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. to Eric Stoltz's heroin. But, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. but the, you remember every line of, of Samuel Jackson and he, he, the movie does not work without him. He is the engine for it. 
Oh my God. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Obviously Ezekiel 1517. This was like, uh, you know, again, just like a, a, a showpiece. Um, and this, dis- you know, this, the execution of this, this intensity that he brings through it and the way he's looking just slightly off camera with the, the tight, you know, zoom in on his eyes. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger. Those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance And then the gunfire and going to black. Like, it's such an incredible thing that the story now makes this jump. And you're left uh, waiting to see what's going to happen as we have Let's Stay Together um, fading in. And we have the title card, Vincent Vega and Marcellus Wallace's wife. And we go to Butch and Marcellus fixing the fight. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. a shot. What a song, just Bruce, who, you know, this was just before Fifth Element. You know, he had obviously come on with Die Hard and become kind of a big hero. And there's certainly a big talk about Travolta, you know, this changing his entire career. Yeah. But this felt like a really big change for Bruce as well. It, it was a big deal that he was in a Quentin Tarantino movie because mm-hmm. Travolta he's picking up a guy who's, who's at the bottom of his career, but, but Bruce Willis was a giant movie star. And so to have a giant movie star participate in this weird dude's second movie was a big deal. It added like a big shine to it. I think probably brought people into the theater too. Right. Yeah. He was definitely the biggest, uh, the, the biggest actor, um, for them in terms of casting, but you have to remember, this is kind of funny. Like we always think about that Travolta was, you know, uh, you know, at the bottom of his career or whatever, he was right in the midst of look who's talking and look who's talking to, and like uh, th- making it, 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 it a gazillion matter, dollars. It didn't matter. He was, he was totally a relic for yeah. the people in the theater watching that. He was a yeah. guy from the seventies. Um, I certainly hadn't seen Look Who's Talking and the fact that he was in it, who cared? Like, this is you a hadn't guy... seen Grease? No, no. I no, hadn't, saying, but, but I hadn't seen I... Look Who's Talking. I'm just saying, yeah. I'm, my point is just like, it's funny. We think about him as being like some poor, you know, roughing it at that period. He was actually rolling in it. He just wasn't. But he, was, he or... was totally, he, no. He. I mean, I get that he was in a movie that made a lot of money, but he that yeah. preceding that, there's like 10 years of stuff no one saw. <laughs> just shit. And, and he was a punchline. And for and I the the thing I remember about this was that like I don't think it was my mom but maybe my aunt like a, a boomer relative saw Pulp Fiction and we were talking about it because it was a movie I loved that summer and the thing that stood out to them was it was so great to see John Travolta dancing in this movie mm. like it was like, like that was that was the thing it was to see John Travolta dancing on screen and like being cool again like felt like some redemptive story for that segment of the audience so it definitely mm. worked um mm. in a way that look who's talking did not <laughs> fair enough Fair enough. I do love, uh, you know, th- there's all these theories about this film, right? And you know, why is he have the Band-Aid on the, you know, why does Ving have the Band-Aid on the back of his head? And, you know, is that like where his soul comes out and they're recovering his soul? That's what's in the briefcase, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but it's, uh, that's just like, that's just like, you know, people writing fan fiction. That's nerd right? Of course. He, yeah. just had a, he just had a scar that he didn't like. And so he asked yeah. Quentin to cover it up. Um, but I love this, you know, his you know, setting up the fight. Night of the fight, you may feel a slight sting. That's pride fucking with you. Fuck pride. Pride only hurts. It never helps. 
You fight through that shit. Just awesome. Uh, and you forget how big of a deal he was. You know, obviously, now he's done all the Mission Impossible movies and that kind of stuff, and he's less of thought of as like a, 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 a dramatic actor. But I just his he's the voice was, of Arby's, man. Oh, <laughs> good call. Really? Yes. I he's the we have that. the meats guy. Arby's, we have the meats. Wow. Oh, Johnny, you know I love my big beef and cheddar. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we have um, Vincent and Jules enter in their outfits, which we don't know why that's happening. But we also get this great Vincent Butch stare down um, and Vincent provoking him, calling him Palooka and, and just yeah. talking with him. But going from there, we talked about the heroine uh, love. So at Lance and Jody's house, you just have to love, you know, both Eric Stoltz and then Rosanna Arquette. Just hilarious in this film. It is the most grounded part of the movie. Right. Um, I have not bought heroin from anyone. Um, I've not been to a heroin dealer in, in Los Angeles, but I have been to many people's houses yeah. that I didn't want to hang out at because they had marijuana. And uh-huh. We were going to buy it from them or we were going to get it from them. And you wanted to just go and get it, but you couldn't. You had to hang out with the drug dealer, right. make small talk. And there were other people doing the same thing. And I thought, oh, this this guy has been in this version of this house a lot. <laughs> yes. A lived experience. Absolutely. But also, once it's time, you know, getting ready to, to shoot up. Mind if I shoot up here? Hey, mi casa, su casa. The music that kicks in as they're going through, you know, the, his kit and, and firing it up. The fetishization of it, the close-ups, the blood coming into the needle. I was like, this is some sexy stuff. Like, this looks really fun. Like, heroin looks great. (laughs) Between that and drugstore cowboy, like, yeah, at least cinematic. It seems seems awesome. And like, Trainspotting, I guess, does show you some of the bad sides. Oh, yeah. um, It also makes it seem pretty cool. Heroin really having a moment. Yes, my own private Idaho as well. Yeah, yeah, really seemed really seemed to have it. Mm. But we have the close-ups now as he gets to the house, and we have Mia. Just the shot of her mouth and the microphone and her voice as the music is playing. It's, it's son of a preacher man. It's just amazing. She's got quite quite a security room. Yeah. this house like it is it is like a real like mall cop security station she's got set up for her is that home. a safe room i don't know what it is a, but she's she's got a lot of machinery and that's it's a great it's a great uh, travolta meme right there's a yeah. lot of memes in this movie but the, the confused travolta trying to find the speaker but son of a preacher man i mean i was definitely a music nerd and what I loved with the soundtrack was that some of it, like, oh, yeah, I like Al Green, too. Isn't that cool? But mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff I hadn't heard before, and again, I have to keep emphasizing, this is pre-internet. So the idea of, right. like, discovering music that wasn't being played on the radio or that an older brother didn't hip you to, like, you weren't going to, if you hadn't heard Dusty Springfield, you weren't going to hear just Dusty Springfield until Quentin Tarantino brought it to you. Right. Um, and it's just very cool um, yeah. that he exposed a lot of people to a lot of great music in this movie. All right, so now we have one of the biggest moments in the film. This is Jack Rabbit Slims. So this, Jason, this entire restaurant built on a soundstage. This was the biggest chunk of the budget, $155,000. This oneer, um, as they're walking through the entire restaurant, is just unreal. Um, as I was saying earlier, obviously a, Godf- a Goodfellas homage, but then also to take it to the next level. But 
this shot, according to Quentin, it was uh, shot on 50 ASA film stock, which is the slowest stock they make. The reason we use it is that it creates an almost no grain image. It's lustrous. It's the closest thing we have to 50s Technicolor. Hmm. Okay. The Gorgeous. thing that I was most excited about is right before they go into the 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 the, uh, the restaurant, she says, "Don't be a," s-, and then she does the square. Yeah. yeah. I was. It's such a small throwaway thing but i was so excited that's when i was like oh my god this movie's gonna do crazy shit and they never yeah, go yeah. back to it they never reference no. that they never do anything else like that which like makes that, you like yeah. it even more i'm like oh he just thought of one cool idea threw it in there and moved on yeah mm. I, it stood out to me on this view as well I'm like that is just a weird bit of filmmaking they chose to engage in right there love that me too yeah really great uh we have steve buscemi back on the pod i am buddy can i get you yeah uh, as buddy holly yeah such a weird one yeah and the five dollar milkshake obviously uh, you know again another thing that everybody was talking about that that summer now i wonder like is this like a flashback is this set in the modern day and, and like looking back to a five dollar milkshake um because it, it seems, seems like, like the- it would be a good deal to have a five dollar right? milkshake now it was like it seems like it would be a it seems like it would be a bargain. What is a what is that a what is that adjusted? It'd be a ten dollar and forty five cent milkshake. <laughs> yeah, does that seem expensive? I think Shake Shack is about five bucks though. Yeah. All right. That's I'm not quite as elevated. Yeah. Maybe we'll have, pretty to, good. we'll have to. Fall. But Fox Force 5 is great. Um, and the description of all the the different girls that are in Fox Force 5. There was a blonde one, Somerset O'Neill. She was a leader. The Japanese fox was a kung fu master. The black girl was a demolition expert. French fox's speciality was sex. What was your specialty? Knives. To me, red like the Kill Bill, you know, original treatment, right? Mm-hmm. And apparently it was yes. on the set of Pulp Fiction that Quentin and Uma, Q and, and you were working on uh, the idea of Kill Bill. Yeah. A yeah, chocolate shake at Shake Shack is five ninety nine. By the way, wow, um, we've exceeded we've exceeded the Jackrabbit Slim's price line. <laughs> um, uh, but I did. I, it's also just like the most TV ish, right? It's a guy who's conversant in TV. It's like so Quentin Tarantino's whole thing is like I'm raised by movies, raised by movies, blah blah blah. Right. I'm the, that's it's also very much a guy who's consumed a ton of TV, like all of us at the time. And so mm-hmm. her her explaining the inner workings of a TV show, TV show like that's all for right. us. Right. Right. But right. also you have the character development that uh that Vincent knows that it's not multiple Marilyn Monroe's. Like he is also really right. well versant in kind of classic film and stuff. Yeah, well, this is a deleted scene that I remember from reading the screenplay because when they pull up to Jack Rabbit Slims, he says, like, do we you know, he's like not into it. And she's like, Come on, an Elvis guy like that should you know, should love this. There's a deleted right. scene where they meet at the house and I don't know if it's filmed or it's just in the screenplay, but in the screenplay, they get into this back and forth. Or are you a Beatles guy or an Elvis guy? And oh, like, wow. you, like Beatles guys can like Beatles guys can like Elvis and Elvis guys can like Beatles, but you can't be both. Um, huh. And and it's like clear that Vincent is an Elvis guy. Um, and that's why she says this. it's this callback to a thing that didn't exist. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, he is himself very like sort of steeped in culture he doesn't exist outside of it it's not just the suit like his whole you know rolling the cigarettes and like you know like his whole vibe is meant to evoke something um and i think and i think does did you roll your own cigarettes 
I didn't. I never developed the ability to roll anything. I did when I was a <laughs> pothead. I had a I had a, a joint rolling machine for okay. a while, yeah. sure. um, which was amazing. And I loved as like a mechanical device. You put the thing in the paper and you just turn the thing and it makes the thing. That was great. But like I'm not very dexterous. And so I was never able to roll anything in anything. The kids can't appreciate it. Like when you would buy the weed, you know, go to the dealer's You have to find something to smoke it out of. You'd have and you couldn't get well, that, that thing. And that thing that was illegal. Too. Yeah, that too. But also the amount of time you would have to spend going through to get stems and seeds and shit out of this. They don't know what we they don't know what what we don't want. You (laughs) young people. I have seen there is a TikTok ad obviously targeted towards me that they call it something else. But that's Uh clearly meant for a a cigarette uh, for weed rolling. I'm like, oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen this, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seems great. I don't know why that exists though. Like, there's like you can just like you can get pre rolls just delivered to your house. And, and I think like, I think it, there's a community of people who who uh, look askance at pre rolls, uh, right? Because they don't of know course. what's in it. Blah, blah blah. I see. I see. I see. All right. Sure. They're Good. committed to the bit. We we support uh, this community. <laughs> so we have now the twist contest, and uh, you know, again, th- this was so huge that summer. Yeah. The, the music, the dance. Her dancing is yeah. phenomenal. His uh, dancing's a little half-assed. It, it, I think by design, right? So, so when I we guess so. When we couldn't do Pulp Fiction last week, I was like, "We're gonna do Saturday Night Fever." Like, I want right. to see this. I've never seen it before, and I finally watched it, and I was like, "God damn, his dancing is incredible!" And if it wasn't chock full of homophobia, racism, and three different sexual assault scenes, I would be all about it. But this movie is now <laughs> banned from uh, from Escape Patch uh, at this point. And so, what? Like, what? Why? Saturday Night Saturday Fever? Fever? It's just too much. It's just too much. Disco? I, I, it's too much disco? No, the disco was great. The, okay. like, and his dancing is incredible. And especially the fact that the final dance is not some big, giant, you know, big, big moving thing. It's this very sensual and tender uh, kind of romantic dance. It's really great. Uh, Peter, I'm always surprised to find out live on this podcast what is what is ruled in and out on the I just didn't realize that, that we had some sort of uh, big tech level censorship around what we yeah, could exactly. or say on this podcast. Exactly. Shocking. The general counsel, the general counsel of Escape Hatch uh, banned all links. To Listen, Saturday Night We need some Fever. kind of oversight board to rule. Yeah, this. exactly. We need an oversight board of cronies. <laughs> we're gonna have. We're gonna appoint Corey and Kev to okay. be the escape no, match oversight trust. board. Oversight no, no. board. Oh, and man. fully you know, funded ha- ourselves. It's only happened twice in the history of the pod, and it was Saturday Night Fever and Strange Days. Um, so I suppose we can't do Revenge of the Nerd because it focuses on date rape as a fun thing to do at the end of the movie. Oh, Revenge shit. of the Nerd, you know the one like the the <laughs> sex comedies of the eighties are yeah. wildly out of pocket. Yes. Like they're yes. wildly out of pocket. Yeah. Oh yeah. Weird science. Like, also, we're leaving it. In yeah. The weird house. science. Sixteen yeah. candles. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of problems. Back to this one. Yeah. Back this was fine. So. This was got. This was got Tarantino <laughs> saying the N word for like five minutes straight for like no like with no dent to his character whatsoever. It's totally fine that he's doing it. No one calls on it. It's meant to be funny and delightful. It's not a problem. <laughs> Uh, this movie's fine. <laughs> yeah, Megan uh, hopefully is is making sure that I successfully edited everything out of all the clips that I that I grabbed. Yeah. So back at the house, we've got "Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon." Girl, you'll be a 
Love this. This is maybe my favorite, maybe my favorite needle drop in the movie. Uh, I love the fact that it's on a reel to reel. I love the way she anticipates the drop. It's just great. Yes. Yes. And then when she ODs and he calls Lance as he's driving to the car, like I said for years, prank call, prank call. Yeah. I, I totally, this took me a while to figure out. Cause like when I saw this movie at 18, I had done zero drugs and to be clear, I've never done heroin or cocaine, but like, I didn't understand that. Like what had happened was that she had snorted heroin thinking it was cocaine. Um, right. and, and so that was, that was like, that was like a mystery to me. I was like, Oh, what happened? Like, uh, until until much much later, I thought it was just like oh she's done too much yeah. of whatever. It, it works fine for that too. Yeah, right, right for us for, for sure. us neophytes. Yeah. So just phenomenal, like the countdown, uh, you know, and then the needle going in, the sound, the the thud. So good. It's so Incredible. good. I, this is what I I remember from the theater as like the big moment of the movie. Like this uh, is. From the theater, like the the needle going in and like, are they actually gonna do this? The close up of the needle, the drop coming out, like this moment and like the audience just screaming, like yeah. when this happened, like it had such a visceral effect. And on the, the catharsis audience. at the end where everyone yeah. just laughs. She's yeah. fine, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> That's like fucking trippy. This, like it's one of those movie going experiences, like for a given, for one scene that like stands out, like even all this time later. Um, mm. of being like really um, like really something that captured a whole theater. Mm. Mm. It it works uh, for sure. And I just, my notes say when they're driving, they're driving back and she's like a total wreck. Um, and my notes were just like, she still looks so hot. Like uh, Uma, I'm in love with you. Um, just amazing. Yeah. I don't uh, know if I'm an Uma. I don't know if I'm an Uma guy. I don't, I don't, I don't, I love her as an actress in this movie. I think she's great in this. Dangerous liaisons. Um, Baron Munchausen. Yeah, I think I'm I think I'm out. But like the the but I do love I do love the I, I do love Mia in this movie. I think she's it's, great. it's her. I have not seen every Uma Thurman movie. But to me, it is her 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 uh, apex. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I like Kill her Bill. more. I like Kill, her more Kill. in this than Kill Bill because I, what? Think I, I think I like this more than Kill Bill. Oh, my God. OK, yeah. well, yeah, fair, fair. Or uh, Gil Bill, right. as I called it earlier. So, so, uh, so now we go uh, like the, the final joke and him blowing the kiss. Like, I love that moment. Although like Vincent, you know, probably there's cameras outside as well. So maybe like watch out, but yeah. And now we go to the gold watch. So now this, I, I, I struggle with this scene a little bit on the rewatch. It, it's a little much. What? It's a, it's a little indulgent. In it my memory, out. it was the scene I liked the least. I'm like, right. this is like the beginning of self-indulgent Tarantino. Yeah. And it's this long story about the, just to have an ass joke. It's just it's to have the one Walken, joke. Just to have Christopher Walken. And so when I rewatched it, I was getting ready to like, uh, just that same thing. Yeah. It actually isn't as long as I remembered, especially compared to the other speeches. I had the opposite well, also, hold reaction. On. Like the 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 dialogue um, of this script is so good. So when he is uh, in the midst of talking about, until your granddad Dane Coolidge was called upon by his country to go overseas and fight the Germans once again. It's time to call it World War Two. Granddad was facing death. He knew it. None of those boys had any illusions, but they were leaving that island alive. So. Three days before the Japanese took the island, your granddad asked a gunner on an Air Force transport named a Wanaki, man he'd never met before in his life, to deliver 
his infant son. We'd never seen the flesh. His gold watch. Yeah, listen. We love our God Emperor. We love our Emperor uh, Shaddam the Fourth, uh, and we're happy to see him here chewing up the scenes. Uh, I think. I think that it is the fact for me that it is just a setup that he put it the only place he could up his ass, and like he wore that. Uh, he wore that watch up his ass for five years or whatever. And it's just like, uh, like okay. And like, it's also it, a monologue, right? So it's inherently yeah, uninteresting. It's, it's one guy talking. It's yeah, in an interplay. talking to a kid, so it can't be. Yeah, and the kid even seems bored. The way the kid is, like, cut to the kid at some point. He's just go. He's kind of got his fist in his face, and he's just like, I, I, I. To me, I think what. What Peter's hinting at, we had the opposite reaction, but we approached it in the same way, which is this to me signals a level of self-indulgent Tarantinoism that mm. we know is coming, like now having had 30 years of him. And right. in this moment, you're just like, I wish he could find the gear to roll it back, you know, to, to, to pull it in sometimes because mm. uh, it, it seemed long to me. And I think actually for me, everything that comes in the second half of the movie felt slower to me than in... Then I remember the first half I was like a hundred percent all in loved it. Like hadn't seen in a long time was grateful to be rewatching it. And in the second half, for whatever reason, after this monologue, I was like, this is where we could have found some spaces like, or, you know, huh. like, there, there's some space that like felt long to me, but I don't Pulp know. Fiction, three stars, Jason Goldman. That's right. It's good enough. <laughs> Uh, I had no problem with it. I love the fact that it starts out from the from Butch's perspective, but off to the side, and then it converts to the head on. Like I like the cinematography and the way that they shot it, um, and I loved Walken. To me, this is Walken before he became, um, you know, kind of like just a character a actor and yeah. became a meme. Like I, he yeah. still was something really special to me. But this was probably the end. This or uh, True Romance was probably the final, uh, yeah. the final one. Yeah, Sicilian. Uh, exactly. We'll, maybe we'll get there. That one is also uh, a potentially problematic. Yeah, there's nothing, so, problem, there's nothing problematic in true romance. Just a, <laughs> uh, just a movie of high standards and, and liberal mores. So we have Butch waking up from the fight and making his way out. We have Esmeralda Villalobos. So I had the same thought, Jason, uh, you know, as much as I was making fun of you. Like suddenly it turns into like a play. Yeah, this the, is like a whole, this is a weird thing. Like this goes rear on projection. forever. Yeah, it goes, I liked the rear projection as like a cinematic nod. Noir, like I, yeah. I, I appreciated that like, I, you know, he's doing this in this like sort of knowing way. But this goes on a lot. This goes on a while. And I think if I remember again from the script, there's even more of it. I think it is actually pared down from what it was. Like they have even a longer interaction in the cast. Well, there's like that. And then there's and Fabian. On. There's the first time with Fabian. Yeah. And then there's the whole conversation after they take yeah. the shower, after he's given her oral pleasure. Yeah. Well, Bill Simmons has permanently ruined this for me. Like he's made a whole category of the rewatchables called Butch's Girlfriend. Uh -huh. The thing that oh, sucks right. in the movie. Right, right. Um, okay. I actually was fond of her when I watched it, and now it's just ruined because of Mr. Simmons. But I, right. I, I, I mean, whatever. This is it's all indulgent. Um I love her in this. Like yeah. I I, I do. I like the actress a lot. I think she's great and I love her accent. Um, also, sh shout out Bruce's body. Like the guy is Bruce looks in, great. In, like unbelievable yeah. shape. Um yeah, I and know, again, I, a great wonder is he's out of the shower and drying off and going to get bed all all one shot. Showing his hog. Yeah, he like he like he he's 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 in good shape in this movie for sure. Mm. But the the slow push-ins again to Butch, the TV, like the tension is just building it. You're like, why are we taking all this time? Why is this happening? And and we get to his explosion, his calm, his explosion again. 
Um, and so I love his performance through all of that. Um, but then the one or following him through the fence to get to his apartment and going in and him letting his guard down, putting the, starting the pop tarts, then seeing the machine gun and then having the pop tarts popping be the, the you know, triggering yeah. incident for him to kill yeah. Vincent. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. I was a great looking gun too. I wonder where that prop is. Get, uh, get our boys on the phone and find out where that gun is. Good point. Good point. So it occurs to me that Vincent was on his own on this mission because Jules had quit like a couple of days before. Right. Right. And actually, like when the, they showed- like the day before, right? I mean, like because like it's literally the day before, right? Because the the day before they see him, like the day of the fight, they see him in the bar when they're in the clothes, they're in the goofy. It's clothes. earlier. He no, because he says Saturday night you're going to do it. So we, we it's some number of days, one or one or more days uh, before, okay. but close. Okay. Yeah, but yeah, it's it's the same week basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So that you know, uh, Jules' decision to get out of the life uh, cost. So what is cost Bruce Vincent. Willis's plan? Throw the fight. Collect the, the money collect from the money from the bookies. But there's like, aren't those bookies all going to? Be in enormous trouble. Well, but he's he thinks he's laundered it through this third party that he talks uh-huh. to on the phone. So he's got he's got like some guy who's placed all these bets, who's who he believes is untraceable back to him. That's probably a bad idea, um, yeah. and that he's going to get away with it. And that like yeah, he's not going to be found in fucking Tennessee, as though that was like <laughs> you know Malta, <laughs> Bora Bora. Hey, look, he's not Jason Board. He's not. He's not really. That's like one of the funny things in the movie is like you know he he gets the drop on Travolta because. Travolta has to go take a crap essentially and leaves his gun outside. And then he's like so proud of himself. He's like, oh, that's how you're gonna, yeah. that's how you're gonna win, yeah, Butchie. Yeah. You say one step ahead of him. He's like, <laughs> you know, luckily he, they didn't have two people in my opinion. Yeah, exactly. He's like right. never, he's like really never a step ahead, right? He's he's a half step ahead and like At you know, best. he ends up getting he gets up getting in a uh crash right away. So that scene is so is so great, uh, but I, I do just want to ask: like, do you remember that first time when Travolta was killed and what your reaction was in the in the theater? Like, I was I couldn't believe it. Like, I didn't yeah. like I, I didn't want to believe it. Uh, yeah, I think the possible. very first time I was still trying to process what the sequencing in the film was, so I didn't really understand at that point that it was possible for him to be dead, um, and kind of just rolled with it as whatever. But there's also a way in which like. It doesn't seem like Travolta. Like, I don't know. It, it feels disassociative to me at some point. You've already had your experience with Travolta. And like, so, I mean, you know, he obviously comes back again, but it just, uh, yeah, I don't know. It didn't and it's like, the it didn't first time me. they kill off a, kill off someone unexpectedly. Right? It's not the Marvin right. scene hasn't happened right. yet. Okay. Right, right. Yeah, yeah I, I just, I really love that. Um, so as you said, Jason, he gets in an accident. Butch is immediately in an accident after seeing Marcellus on the street and running over him. Marcellus um, is apparently like walking in LA and getting, getting donuts, donuts, which is sus. <laughs> I'm not really sure Marcellus either walks or gets donuts. I think he's got people for that. <laughs> Fair point. Uh, but now we're in the pawn shop and obviously this was the other really iconic thing of this film. Bring out the gimp. We have Zed as this security guard and Maynard. Go ahead, Peter. Do you know what the soundtrack to this is supposed to be? Oh, what's it supposed to be? Please. My Sharona. Yes. The Knack. Oh. 
Yeah. And it's, what, what's wild is this is this isn't even to this isn't even like a Wikipedia thing. I remember knowing this in advance of seeing the movie. Like there'd been huh? that much buzz that I'd read something in like the Alt Weekly in Minneapolis about how they wanted to have it. Uh, My Sharona, what a great fucking song that would be. And then yeah. it's his words, not mine. Um, Holy shit! And so I can never get My Sharona out of my head when I watch Pulp Fiction. Oh my god! Yeah, I feel I feel this this also like this scene like kind of like I, I don't know like too far because it's like you're inherently in this like nether world that's like and you know you popped through the looking you know you you were dealing with one world of criminality and then you in, you entered a pocket universe of even more depravity than you you thought was possible but like it really does sort of like it, it really does kind of you know stand out as something that I think wouldn't fly. Uh, today, like, I don't think you, I think, if, I think, like, even, like, I think you'd start getting, I think you'd start with getting, like, letters from, like, the BDSM communities, like, this is not accurately predict, like, <laughs> portray, like, sort of. I, I think the like, only pro rape scene letters you got are not gonna be ones that you wanna open. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm. Mm. It's a tough one, uh, for sure. But it, the, the way they even, though, bring in the humor of it, Bruce upgrading weapons, Step by step, I am curious if that's a Hattori Hanzo uh, blade. Oh yeah, that's it's an anticipation of samurai swords to come. Yeah, but Bruce looks like a superhero with the blood looks on good. his on his shirt, like he just yeah, yeah, the, yeah. his outfit actually reminds me of uh, um, what you call it, Unbreakable, um, with mm. him as a superhero in, in regular costumes. But so so like the the Maynard split diopter shot of Bruce coming in, and then finally we have this oneer of Ving. Um, as he delivers, you know, just an unbelievable uh, performance. And everyone that summer saying, I'm going to get medieval on your ass. You hear me talking, hillbilly boy? I ain't through with you by damn sight. I'm going to get medieval on your ass. Yeah, the medieval on your ass really does stand the test of time. It's what it's it's probably one of the most enduring lines, and and one of the most quoted at the moment too. Like that yes. broke through to the zeitgeist, which is a very yes. funny thing to have like broken through into like sports yes. or whatever it was. Yes, like this rape a, revenge, it's a rape revenge joke. Yeah. but all right, 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 right. Uh, and then I also do love the the wave, the the no look wave. Yeah, uh, yeah. over the shoulder. Um, and of course, as Butch, you know, goes back and gets Fabian. Whose chopper is this? Zed's. Who's Zed? Zed's dead, baby. Zed's dead. This is the chronological end of the movie. Right. Yeah. Nothing can happen after this because Vincent's dead. Yeah. This is the last, the last thing. All right. So we have one final segment, which is the Bonnie situation. So going back to the moment of Ezekiel twenty-five fifteen. Um, and when the kid in the, in the bathroom misses with all of his shots, Jules is changed. And so to me, this is the only character who's really changing through the right. midst of this story is Jules, who does have an experience and, and is changed. Uh, but that gets set off a little bit by, uh, you know, um, Marvin taking a bullet in the face. That was a shocking moment. Yes. Like way was. more than, than John Travolta being killed. Yeah, like, it was. Like now we're totally used to random violence like that, but that was... Like oh crime. yeah i mean that was a so shock visceral the like movie. there's there's brains like behind his ear like there's just it's like, still it's, shocking yeah it's it's very violent yeah. yeah uh but going going to that mm, god damn jimmy this is some serious gourmet shit mm. god damn jimmy this is some serious gourmet shit me and vincent would have been satisfied with some freeze-dried taster's choice right <laughs> and he brings this serious gourmet shit on us what flavor is this knock it off julie what? 
I don't need you to tell me how fucking good my coffee is, okay? I'm the one who buys it. I know how good it is. Quentin, not the best actor. Not the best actor in this film. Like, could have found someone else to do this part. I didn't mind it at all. I mean, he's not good at it, but I'm like, all right, <laughs> you made this movie with all this ridiculous yeah, yeah, yeah. bullshit in it, and you want to have a coffee scene, and you want to use yeah, the yeah, N-word yeah. a bunch. Now yeah. less good, but <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> Well, this was the other role that uh, Stoltz was considered for. Basically, yeah, Stoltz told, would have been good in this. Well, he's like, you can have either of the bathrobe roles. So you can either right. do Jimmy or you can do Lance. And he chose to do Lance. Yeah, basically uh, anyone from uh, Kicking and Screaming would have been good in this part uh, right. instead of Quentin. Uh, like, take, like throw a rock and hit a any of them. Parker Posey even would have been the key fine. grip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so that, but this does land us with Mr. Wolf. Uh, so, you know, and, and Harvey Keitel, obviously hugely important because he was the one that Quentin approached to do Reservoir Dogs, uh, yep. who he had kind of written it for. And then that helped get the movie greenlit. So basically is responsible for, for everything. Mm -hmm. Um, and is huge in Reservoir Dogs. And, um, but his performance in here right now, Jimmy lead the way boys get to work. Please would be nice. Come again. I said a please would be nice. Get it straight, Buster. I'm not here to say please. I'm here to tell you what to do. If I'm curt with you, it's because time is a factor. I think fast, I talk fast, and I need you guys to act fast if you want to get out of this. So pretty please, with sugar on top, clean the fucking car. Amazing. There's a couple things I like about my dear friend, Harvey Keitel, with whom I used to do yoga in Manhattan when I lived there. He, Excuse me. Like, he, uh, he, the, the thing that's funny about the wolf part is that there's nothing particularly good about wolf. Like there, it's sort of like the same thing as the hitman. Like he just like, kind of was like, yeah, do the obvious thing, clean up the mess, throw some blankets the, in there. That's put my the, big plan. Put some, put some blankets in there. We're going to drive the place to like the wrecking yard where my girlfriend works, uh, and dispose of the body in the car. Like that's my, that's my plan. I'm wearing a tuxedo though at, you know, nine in the morning for reasons that are unclear. It's a gambling party that he was at. You could hear. I, I've done the same Google, but yes, they don't. They certainly don't spend time on it in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And like, you know, it's like, it's great. It seems great. Um, All yeah. of the interactions between him and Quentin, where, where Jimmy is like, oh, uh, yes, sir. And Quentin's White. like, he's like so reassured by Mr. Wolf being there. <sighs> I'm an oak man, Jimmy. How about you? Um, and that is, I think, for a, a lot of us, our first Harvey Keitel, right? Was he, was the piano before that? He, he, this is my first Kaitel for sure. All oh, right, he was in Reservoir Dog and Bad Reservoir Lieutenant. Reservoir Dogs, though. Yeah. 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 Bad Lieutenant. But like, I Bad hadn't Lieutenant, seen, holy shit. I hadn't seen, I hadn't seen those. Like, this was, this was the first, this was the first Kaitel that, that mattered to me for sure. Yeah. So he's, he's, he's actually red hot now. He'd made the piano, um, his ascent, his, but yeah, he was obviously huge in the 70s. And I Googled him and apparently he was still working throughout the 80s, but obviously was not someone that our generation had seen. And right. is that is that connection to like Mean Streets and yep. like the Scorsese, mm. like you know, sort of crime of a different generation of like of a, of twenty years prior, and Saturn Three with Farrah Fawcett, which <laughs> certainly we will do eventually, Great. and Kirk Douglas, <laughs> uh, you know, just Jules and Jules and Vincent, you know, I'm a mushroom cloud land motherfucker, motherfucker, um, like I love that, uh, but ultimately they make it, they get out, and we're back at the diner. Um, and this whole monologue about walking the earth like Kane, um, which is obviously Bill, uh, Robert Carradine from Kill Bill. Um, love that. And then just his performance as he's facing down the gun and putting him into position. And then the truth is 
You're the weak. And I'm the tyranny of evil men. But I'm trying, Ringo. I'm trying real hard to be the shepherd. I thought a lot about this scene, this monologue. First of all, amazing performance by Samuel Jackson. He sells the shit out of it. Like he's, it's so good. He's selling all these layers of like what he's going through. I thought a lot about like the text of like, and what he's saying. And I really don't think it means anything. I think it means literally nothing. Like the whole, like I'm <laughs> trying to be, I'm trying to be this guy, blah, 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 blah. But I realize, like, you know, I'm really trying to, I'm like, I don't really think it that adds up. I don't think if you actually break that all apart, it adds up to anything. I think it is really where he starts, which is like, this is like, uh, this is like, you know, sort of something cool that he said, he realized he could say to someone before he smoked him. Um, and like now it is something cool. It's a cool moment to give to Samuel L. Jackson in the movie. And it is this durable people memorize this and would say it. It became this like durable moment from the film. And but it actually thematically doesn't mean anything in the nothing. Movie. I mean, the one it's not a realistic film. I do think if you wanted to uh, indulge it, you could say, well, this is the kind of thing someone who'd had a life changing event might try right. to articulate and it would sound rambling and incoherent. Um, or it might sound really impressive in a, in the moment if you thought about it afterwards, it wouldn't fit. But I, I think he's just throwing words against the wall. I think it's totally just the 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 flavor of the dialogue. I'm going to say two things. One, at two o'clock or four o'clock in the morning, Quentin over a plate of cocaine. I'm sure it sounded perfect. Um, <laughs> but I I think it's all about the violence that he's prepared to do in the first iteration of it, and the second way. Uh, that he delivers it in such a more contemplative way. And the idea of like violence for violence sake is no longer valuable. Um, and that idea of wanting to extend grace to others because it was extended to him. That to me, I think actually does work. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm against you guys on that one piece. I think, I think we, we should, should be leaving. leaving yeah, it's probably a good idea. Credits. Um, it's the it's the lamest end line. Yeah, yeah, it is for a movie that's like so talky. It's completely unmemorable. It's like I got nothing. I'm I'm literally out of words. I'm out of so I'm go. out of words. Yeah, let's just leave this diner. Yeah, it is wild. There is no real button there, although the music's great. Yeah, yeah. Mm, anything we missed? Um, have you guys ever tried to account for how many bad? Pulp Fiction movies have been made since Pulp Fiction. Oh, let's talk about it. Either direct I mean, Boondock Saints, which I've never seen, but that's obviously like top of the heap, right? There was there's a wave of them that comes right after this, like Two Days in the Valley, which had Naked mm. Charlie's Theron, which is great. Mm. Uh, and things to do in Denver when you're dead. Right. And right, it goes yeah. on and on. Then you have all, and so those are the right. just direct, we're just gonna make Pulp Fiction knockoff. Yes. Yeah. And then there's like you can extend it to like all the British pulp gangster movies which are not right. the same Lock, but all have, two smoking barrels, all have yeah. wisecracking right. super literate and right. it's still happening I just watched a terrible Brad Pitt movie on Netflix called like Bullet Train Bullet Train and it's it's terrible and I had to watch it in like four sittings just for like punishment <laughs> but it still has like all the wisecracking hitmen and they've all got weird backstories and it bathes yeah. in like ultra violence but also comedy and we don't even register it as Pulp Fiction knockoffs right? Now, but, but it they're is. all directly yeah. from Pulp Fiction. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. a really good call. I guess it's like 
you view like I would view something like John Wick as a departure. Like we have to we where where it is about there's ultra violence, but um, no real comedy. It's yeah, not, it's they're not, not it's, pop literate. Right, exactly. It's its own. It's its own universe of seriousness. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. And again, to me, it raises the question of like, what is the you know if if Mean Streets was seventy three and and Pulp Fiction was was ninety four and like what what was like the two thousand four was the mid teens, you know, revisiting of this crime, uh, you know, evolution of the. I think they're the, still making Pulp Fiction. I think they're still making Pulp Fiction. That's how like long lasting it is. That to me is what I was going to say in closing on this movie is that like in watching it, there's like there's parts of the movie that I love uh, and really appreciate. And I enjoyed watching the movie for sure. It's it's still a a banger. Um, It's difficult for me to watch this movie as just like another movie. Like it, it does feel like watching The Godfather or something like Citizen Kane, like where you're just like, oh, this is this like storehouse of like technique that like you can't help but see like all of the things that it touched um, and all of the moments that just like, you know, like I, I'll make him an offer. I can't refuse. Like, you know, it's just like it, it's just like that that line you can't hear except for in the thousands of Mythic. ways. It's like, yeah, yeah, permeated culture writ large. Um, and that's, you know, that, it, it, you know, that's obviously a tremendous testament to the success of the movie and the durability of the movie. But in another way, it makes it hard to like kind of appreciate it or like approach it anew. And then you get into the fact that this movie meant something so specific to those of us who saw it at the time when it came out that like, you know, it again becomes like hard to kind of um, it, it, be, it just becomes impossible to kind of approach it with anything like uh, fresh eyes or even even kind of doing what we do on the pod here, which is like trying to take a deeper look at it. I feel I'm like, well, what depths can we plumb? Like, you know, this this movie is like this movie has uh, been strip mined to death, like by <laughs> our generation. And I'm very grateful for having done this exercise with you. But it, it does feel like a different type of thing to right. um to interrogate than some of the other movies we care. I'm, I'm glad I did the rewatch for a bunch of reasons, but also to see like, oh yeah, he was always doing this yeah. dialogue. Yeah. And this is oh, yeah. so much more of a dialogue movie than it is anything else. Yeah. I totally forgotten that. Um, because again, I thought it was tighter. I, I think it's this, this and, and Jackie Brown are like mm. my one, a one B I could flip them mm. around either that. And then after that, like, I just wish there was someone and said, no, no, Quentin, you could, it could be shorter. Yeah. I, I appreciate, I appreciate it. And I haven't rewatched it nearly as much. And maybe I've only seen it once all the way. Jackie Brown. No, no, no. Inglorious Bastards. I was going to make the case for because I like what it's doing from a formal invention standpoint. Like it's taking an exploitation revenge movie and putting in the context of the Holocaust, which I think is interesting. And then two, I like how formally inventive it, like, you know, it, it's so it's so interesting exploring like things like the opening scene and the tension of the people beneath the, and, the, and the bar scene, like the way in which it builds tension. It's so patient in a way that this movie isn't patient. This movie feels like furtive and like it wants to get to where it's going. Um, uh, it, you know, it's, got, it's like bursting with ideas and it's bursting with sizzle, whereas like he found a way to kind of take time. Um, and Inglorious Bastards that I think is um, that I think is really interesting. Um, but I yeah, saw I theaters don't and I was just like, I was like, I don't know, like it's just it's more revenge. If I hadn't, if Django hadn't been right before it, I probably would have been more into it. Right, and uh, I think and, I didn't see Django until I saw Inglorious Bastards. Ah, got it. I mean, to me, Kill Bill, uh, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, like those those are my those are my favorite Tarantino's um, that are there, but. 
I'm stuck in the nineties. Uh, who would Tilda Swinton play? Mm. I'm claiming uh, Winston Wolf. No, oh, you're going first. Wow. Yeah, I'm going first. Sorry. There's a million good roles uh, that, that you can Aggressive. put her in. But I think Mr. Wolf would be awesome for her. Uh, Marcellus. What do you think, Marcellus. Oh, it's so nice. good. Because it's such a good choice. Uma. It's great. Um, mm. There's a ton of roles. I guess. <laughs> Jimmy. Yeah, I was going to actually go with I was going to go with like someone from like the Jackrabbit Slim universe, like maybe in the maybe she plays Buddy Holly or like the yeah, uh, the MC. But um, yeah, I don't know. She, she it's hard to imagine Tilda in a Quentin in the Quentin universe at all. She feels it feels like putting like a porcelain doll in like, you know, a fucking earthquake fault zone or something like that. Like, but a porcelain seems- brawl, a, a porcelain doll that is unbreakable. Yeah, I mean she's not fragile. Like she 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 could stand up to it. It just feels like the it feels like I I, I want better for Matilda. I, I mean I don't want her. <laughs> I would like you to see Lydia to Tar in this movie, which I realize yeah. Matilda. Ah, yeah, still. nice. All right, can we do some voicemails really quick? Really quick, I got I got a hard stop. Let's see where we go. All right, very good. Here we go. Let's see. Yes, here we go. The truth sayer. All right, y'all, beer you here for the Pulp Fiction Truth Sayer. This time we're going to focus on the man, the myth, the fantastic dancer, John Travolta. He's much better in Pulp Fiction than in Broken Arrow. Three stories about John Travolta, two are false, one is true. It's Truth Sayer time. Number one, John's breakthrough film role was in Saturday Night Fever. While filming his iconic disco scenes, John had to switch between two copies of the exact same suit because he'd sweat through each Mm. one so fast. One would dry off while he was busy sweating up the other one. Story number two. In 1991, John married Kelly Preston. They actually had to get married twice due to the fact that his marriage with a Scientologist minister was deemed illegal. Or is it number three? John loves coffee so much in fact, he said that his morning routine involves making a single cup of coffee using a half pound of Starbucks Sumatra blend. So we're looking for the truth about John Travolta. What you got? I'm going with one. He looks like a sweaty dude. He looks like a dude that would need two suits. I li- and I and I I am also uh, rather sweaty myself. So I, I I would ask for that. I need to put Hair that into my for writer sure. for Escape Hatch. I need two mm. T-shirts for all recordings from now on. Available uh, now on the merch store. Uh, yeah. F- folks want to check that out. A true thing about uh, John Travolta is that the uh, hardware store in in uh, in that movie is uh, is 50 yards from my house. What? It's now like a Muslim boutique. I was going to say, it's, it's, it's going to be But it was a hardware like a, store when I moved there. It's like a wow. matcha. It's like a matcha nail salon or something. But, uh, <laughs> but now I, I go, I, I'd go with one. And uh, there's a lot of lot of unflattering uh, uh, John Travolta stories that could have been told in this podcast. So yes, right. for sure. We're being smart. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with number three. I'm gonna go with a coffee one. Let's see what happens. Okay, the true story about John Travolta is well, all three of these stories are true. John Travolta wow. is really, really sweaty. Wow. He loves nuclear coffee and is problematically Scientologisty. Yes. Here ends the truth sayer. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well threaded. A well new threaded. a new truth saying technique. 
that feels appropriate for Pulp Fiction. It feels like in Pulp Fiction. (laughs) Maximalist. Yeah. Like, you know, you could, you know, just like bend the rules. Yes. All right. Here we go. Hello, Bogpod. Hey, Bogpod. Hello, Bogpod. Hey, Bogpod. 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 The best sounder. The best sounder. Hello, Boghatch. You know, I was a film student once, and by once I mean a few months ago. Um, And, you know, I like to think that I'm into film, as they say. But I've never watched Pulp Fiction. I just can't bring myself to watch it, people. Because of the the film bros, people. Folks. Buddies. Pals. It's it's vile, really, the film bro epidemic. Some kind of horrible, evil amalgamation of men and movies and men who make movies. It's just a terrible combination, really. Men shouldn't be allowed to make movies or talk about them, really, with some exception. What's a movie that's been ruined for you by film bros? Yeah. By a terrible fan base, by men who are just too annoying. For me, that's the prequels. I, I like the prequels. I think they're fun. They're not very good, but they're they're fun. But it's so hard to watch them now because if you watch them, someone's going to walk past and be like, oh, is it the prequels? What? Wow. Uh, George Lucas, genius. Shut up. Shut up. Go home. Watch a real movie for once. Stop watching the MCU. Bye-bye, guys. Kisses. I'm, I, it's very reassuring to hear that actually that like anyone who would be into this podcast especially someone as, as loyal as Ethan wouldn't self-identify as a film bro if to me that means that we're doing the marketing right um, <laughs> and I, I feel what you're saying there's a lot in this category for me we've lost a lot we've lost too much mm. uh, Fight Club we've lost uh, it's a shame because it's at one time I would say it was in my top five um, I feel American Psycho is at risk. Um, I feel the scene in which Aragorn kicks the helmet. Uh, oh, man. <laughs> um, there's a lot. I mean, possibly all of Coppola, the Godfather. Yeah, Godfather. The, the yeah. Godfather as a whole. Um, a lot of Tarantino is at risk, just generally. Um, it's a... Uh, it's a troubled, it's a troubled world. What do, what do you, what do you guys think? Yeah, my first thought, best thought was absolutely uh, um, uh, Fight Club. So yeah. just trying to scratch. Nice. I mean, any Scorsese. Yeah. Um, um, so Goodfellas can put that right up there. Although sure. it can't diminish any of the enjoyment I get out of watching it every single time. On the other end of the spectrum, on like the soft boy end of the film bro spectrum, like Paul Thomas Anderson as a whole, I mean, like, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson film bros who like go too far. Um, mm. And I mean, and Kubrick, I, you know, one of the things one of the most interesting things I thought was at work in Barbie was how she was like so intentional about invoking Kubrick as mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, like she, like the movie starts out with the 2001 reference. They reference the shining, the ta- she said that like the table scene in Mattel is meant to be, is meant to be, yeah, the war room from Strange Love. Like she's very intentionally playing with Kubrick stuff, and I think it is because of the Godfather joke in the movie, where it's like Kubrick is this fetishistic film bro. Is uh, he's the ultimate? I mean, you know, for for many, including me, and like she's like showing a willingness to play with it um, in a way that I appreciated. So there's really a lot, but it's mm. fine because it's all getting reinterpreted. I, I do regret losing Fight Club because that's one where it wasn't just we lost it to f- film bros. We lost it to like the alt right. 
Um, and that's a, but that's from a the jump though, from the, from the jump, jump, yeah, that was a movie that some people took yeah. literally, yeah, and there should be like there should be just some sort of basic citizenship test. Like, do yeah, you think this is literally <laughs> what they're trying to tell you? And yeah. if answered yeah. no, we're revoking the vote. But, yeah, it's yeah. a great, that's a great movie. I love that movie. Uh, uh, Rusty in chat says Zack Snyder films, and I would say the films have to be good before they can suffer from this problem. So <laughs> we, don't have to, we don't have to worry about that. All right, we have two more briefly. Let's we have from Kev, we have uh, Kev's testimony? third ever written Kev's question. Yeah, get better, Kev. Kev's under the weather. He says, I wanted to do something special for this episode, but unfortunately, I'm sick with COVID again. Jesus. improving every day, but you wouldn't want to hear my voice right now. Kev's question. Pulp Fiction is famous for revitalizing the career of John Edna Turnblad Travolta. Is there an actor <laughs> whose career we could revive by casting them in the Dune movies? If so, whom and what role? Peace and love to the host, the guest, the Chuckle Hut, and of course, the editing team. You'll hear from me next week. Probably your friend in time, Kev. Once again, it's Kev's questions. First off, first off, it just needs to be said. I'm I think we're running a risk of some HIPAA violations that H can continue to like command Kev to produce questions on weeks in which he is battling. I think that's OSHA, sir. It's something. Yeah, exactly. I mean, luckily H doesn't pay anyone for this, but uh. yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's the only reason. The only reason we don't compensate our very loyal voicemailing staff is because we don't want to incur employer employee responsibilities. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, we all have a role. Get back into the, get back into the mines, Kev. We don't care if you have black lung. Work through it. <laughs> get, get your better. questions in. If you don't get your questions in, they dock you. <laughs> <laughs> There's also no insurance coverage. Um, so I, it, it, he doesn't need his career to be revitalized, but I, the only person I want to get into Dune that I'm focused on is Hoon Lee. Take oh, your place, okay. Hoon. Let's get in there. All right. That's a, that's a different question. That's not answering, that's not answering the question. Hoon Lee's career is doing great. Um, that's what I said. Yes. Yeah. Um, Let's see here. Let's see here. I'm ready for uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme, who they tried to revive a few years oh, ago. Oh, yeah. There you go. Um, but he seems like a good QT character. Yeah, that'd be great. But in Gary? Dune? Well, yes. I, yeah, I, I can't help you out there. I'm just talking. Uh, what I'm, about, I'm taking the spirit in which it's attended. What about uh, like Gary Busey? Uh, well, I think he's unreclaimable. Can, yeah, I don't think you can get him back. Can we put? We can put Gary Busey in as some like face dancer in the yes. Dune universe. Who's like <laughs> glitching out? Beach jazz, buttered sausage. Little want to talk about buttered sausage. <laughs> oh, Kev, thank you. We love you, and I hope you feel better soon, my friend. We need your voice per the contract. The email doesn't cut it. Cool. Three. Hey, Pat. Hey, it is Corey calling from Austin, Texas, about 1994's Pulp Fiction. I can't believe we finally got here. I'm super excited about this one. Of course, like I was, what, 1994. I was 22 years old when this movie came out. I was a perfect mark for this movie. I remember taking my little brother, who's 12 years younger than me, to see Jim Carrey's The Mask. And before The Mask was a trailer for Pulp Fiction. Mm. And I knew right then this was going to be the most important movie I'd ever seen as a young adult. Like, I just, you could feel it. Like, the the music that was used in the trailer, the way the trailer was edited, 
the amount of stars, like at one point near the end of the trailer, they start going through like everybody saying everybody's name is in it, flashing them on the screen. And the way I remember it was that it finally got to Bruce Willis's part and it was, and Bruce Willis. <laughs> of course, they didn't say it like that in the trailer. I went and rewatched it just to make sure. I do like my memory better that it was so pronounced because I love Bruno so much. But that's how it felt to me. I was like, just to having, having Bruce Willis in this as well was like the coolest thing ever for me. Um, obviously this movie's super influential. We finally showed it to our son. He's what? 13 mm, at the time. Wild. 14 now. And he thought it was great. He loved it. He loved the structure. He had one note and that was, they sure use the N word a lot. Yeah. They do. Yeah. They do. It was a different time, folks. So it was a different, it, it was the 90s. Even then. <laughs> so, anyway, um, I know you guys are probably going to, this is going to be a long episode. Fingers crossed. I'm really ready for it. I'm ready for you guys to do this. <laughs> Who would Tilda Swinton play? This is a great question. I don't know. Ah, there's just so many people that are all so great as who they are. And I would think maybe sticking her in and trying to save the Asmerelda Villalobos part. That part is oh. not the best. So let's Damn. put Tilda there. As God, the smart. The and see how that goes. All right. That's smart. Love you guys. Can't wait for this episode. And I'm super excited about the film for next week. Let's not announce it yet, H. Anything can happen. Anything can happen. All right. Love you guys. Bye. That's a really good call. Corey. That's a great call. Corey, I knew this movie would mean something to Corey, and he really he really captured it. I have Thank listened you. to enough of your podcast that I assumed Corey's role was to come and shit on the movie. Go, ah, <laughs> I saw it. I didn't really like it. <laughs> so, no, this, so that this was bracing. Was good good, good counter-programming, Corey. Yeah. Nicely done, Corey. Peter, what do you have to plug? Uh, pod, I'm making a podcast about Twitter. You guys might be interested <laughs> what? in that. Uh, Excuse that'll me. be out later this fall. And uh, I make podcasts weekly, generally. And I make yeah. content. So yeah, go check it out over at Vox.com. The Recode Media Podcast. It's excellent. It's excellent. Uh, it will help you make uh, make sense of everything that is going on. Thank you, Peter, for joining us again. Thank you, gentlemen. Good luck with your hair issues, both oh of you. Oh, my God. Mm. Just everything that's happening. Jason, what do you have to plug? I guess I'm going to plug pure extract of eucalyptus because it <laughs> apparently kills lice. So, yeah, get some of that. Be good for you. And, mir and, and Miraculous, <laughs> the story of Ladybug, I think is a pretty good cartoon available on Netflix. Nice. All right. Thank you, guys. See you guys next week. Bye, y'all. Thank you. And that's it for this very special episode of Escape Patch. I want to thank Jason and Peter for an amazing conversation. Next week, it's the triumphant return of Jeremiah Gordon as he leads us to tackle our first Denzel with Spike Lee's Inside Man. If you're enjoying the show, we need your help. Take a minute to leave us a five-star rating review wherever you listen to your podcast, or just tell your friends about us because it really does help new listeners find the show. We also have a Discord server where you can hang out with us online whenever you want, and a Patreon where you can support us and unlock exclusive perks. Links are in the show notes. Escape Patch is a Tape Deck Podcast, John, a production of H Industries. Our artwork is by Catcher, and our theme music was composed by Scott Fritz and Who's the Boss Music. The episode was edited by Megan Hayward of Edit Audio and produced by me, H. Thanks for listening. We'll see everybody next week.
So he hid it. In one place he knew he could hide something, his ass. Five long years he wore this watch, up his ass. Then he died of dysentery. He'd give me the watch. I hid this uncomfortable hunk of metal up my ass, two years. Then, after seven years, I was sent home to my family. And now, little man, I give the watch to you. <laughs>